Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 146 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Hope everybody's doing all right. Uh, Still kind of in the throes of COVID here, but I really wanted to get another episode out. Uh, Sorry about not getting one out last week. Actually, Joe was one of the people who I was scheduled to talk to and uh, I just had to, I tried to reschedule it two different times and it was just impossible to get out of bed. So Joe was kind enough to uh, do it uh, yesterday with me. And so I thank him for that. As you could tell, I still was still a little raspy here, but uh, the fevers and the body aches have stopped. I want to thank everybody who posted such kind words on the Instagram and Facebook or those who sent me text messages or emails checking in. I really, really appreciate it. Hopefully I'll be on the mend here because next week I'll be going to the Green Mountain Bluegrass and Roots Festival, which is going to be really exciting. And so again, I'm flying into Boston on Tuesday and the only plans we have are we want to get to Portland, Maine at some point before we go to Vermont on Friday. So we'll be in Boston, headed to Portland if anybody's got some restaurants or music stores or bookstores or record stores that they recommend or anything we should do when we're there, please shoot me an email at danielpatrickmusic at yahoo.com or you can go to mandolinsandbeer.com and send me a message through the website as well. So really looking forward to that. That's going to be a good time. Also looking forward for everybody to hear who guest number 150 is as well. I'm really excited for that episode to air. Uh, it's going to be a two-parter for sure, I believe. So, Okay, this episode is brought to you by Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, dobro, fiddle, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass and old-time and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Who do you ask? I'll tell you who. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, Downloadable notation and tab and play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part is you can join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com. Use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And check out those sweet new fiberglass cases they've got. They are awesome. That seafoam green one, so sharp looking. And be sure to follow them on Instagram. And uh, those cases, again, I believe the pricing is limited right now at a uh, an uh, introductory offer. So if you want one of those cases for the best price available, go to Northfield's website and get you one today. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins, designed and built in Austin, Texas boy, he's been posting some beautiful pictures of both Pava mandolins and Ellis mandolins. Such a such great instruments, man. So also be sure to check them out. And thank you to Ellis for sponsoring this episode. Speaking of building fantastic mandolins, do you know that you could even build your own mandolin? And I'm sure it's not as easy as it sounds with it right there, but um, you know what can make it easier is the ultimate bluegrass mandolin construction manual now in. It's fourth edition. It's only $44.95. And if you go to SiminoffBooks.com, you can get the book. It's originally published in 1973. Four editions. That says a lot there. It's got an introduction by Stephen Gilchrist. I think that says a lot there as well. Roger Siminoff, just one of the uh, the legends and all this stuff. So it's got a uh, the text includes a primer on musical acoustics, wood selection, graduating the soundboard, backboard, making the neck, truss rod installation. It's got full color pictures. 
It's spiral bound and it's even got the tap tuning techniques. So be sure to go to SiminoffBooks.com and order yourself a copy today. I know you're saying, you know what, I'd rather just buy a mandolin. I don't have the time to build one. I can relate, and so can Elderly Instruments. Elderly is your trusted source for new used and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experience to the beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now, in their 50th year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. All right, thank you so much to my sponsors. Be sure and go to visit them. They help make this podcast possible. Uh, Joe Brent, um, when we talk about the 10 minutes a day, he talks about a pretty cool exercise uh, that he learned, and he sent along the PDF file for me to uh, put at mandolinsandbeer.com. So if you want to check that out, you can download it for free at mandolinsandbeer.com. Also, all of the song selections that are played in today's website or today's episode will be listed the track and the album so you can go out and check them out and purchase copies so there we go let's get into this uh, episode with joe brent i tried really really hard to edit out any throat clearing water drinking coughing cough drop noises and all that good stuff so i think i, I think i got them all but uh in any case thanks again uh, i miss y'all and um cheers everybody have a great week Now it's my uh, honor to welcome to the podcast here, Joe Brent. Joe, how you doing today? Hey, how are you? I'm I'm doing better than you. Uh, right <laughs> yeah, now. yeah. Uh, um, apologies for the. Uh, I gotta thank you. I'll, I'll publicly thank you. Joe was great as he he and I were supposed to do this interview <laughs> last week when when COVID first hit someone in my household and then it hit a second person, and so we had to reschedule and then we went to reschedule again and then I got it and. And then we, uh, we're shooting for today, is, and today's the best I've been feeling. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you're feeling better. This is the world right now, and I'm sure you know we're all used to at this point. You know, just making do with you know the, whenever things are able to happen. And, you know, it's uh, it's totally fine. We've all we've all been in that situation. <laughs> well, yeah. I I appreciate the uh, the flexibility to get this done. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you appear to be super busy, man, when, um, you know, when I'm looking at your website and your bio and your shop, just the mm. the amount of albums that you mm. put out. And, and it's not, you know, sometimes when you look at shops for people who put out a lot of records and you go through and listen to them, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see why they put out a lot of records because it's not always really great. <laughs> it's like, I mean, anybody could put out a lot of records, I guess, but your records are complex. <laughs> you know, it's some it's stuff, a, man. It's a complex musical ecosystem. <laughs> and uh, I, th- I think there's a reason that uh, the kinds of artists that, that come to Ad Europa uh, find us. And, uh, you know, it's a, uh, we started 
uh, we being me and Andrew Ryan, the bass player in Nine Horses, which is you know my main band. And uh, we started Odd Europa sort of as a reaction to our previous record label that Nine Horses had been on, which I, I have nothing negative to say about them. So if anyone does research and figures out which record label I'm talking about, I'm not going to mention them by name. But just know that there's no animosity between us and the previous label. They're lovely and started by music enthusiasts, and, and they're great. But they're sort of an older, uh, you know, mid-level uh, or mid-sized record label specializing in jazz, operating with the same concepts and the same contracts that they had been using for many, many years. Problem is the the musical world has changed quite a bit, as you know. Every musician knows uh, the the income streams and the availability of you know just making a living doing this has become more and more difficult and more and more complex. And so we decided that not only did we want to create a new record label for what we did, but then once we did that and we realized that starting a label like this is front-loaded with a ton of work and a, a, a pretty massive information download. But once that's done, we were then able to offer it as a platform for other artists who really sort of wanted the same thing as us, which is, it turns out, is a lot of people. <laughs> uh, particularly artists that um, there isn't really an elevator pitch for, meaning they're, you know, sort of uh, beyond what you would consider to be just a, a single genre artists that are more difficult to, to pin down, you know, in terms of I'm this or I'm that. And I mean, honestly, nowadays, especially in the younger generation of musicians that describes more people than it doesn't, you know, it's the, the availability of music uh, just in terms of what you're able to listen to at any given moment is so vast that I think the younger generation musicians has a much more broad and much more varied listening uh, experience of music and interface with music than any other generation before them. And so it makes sense that a lot of these artists are, are making music that reflects that. And they're attracted to what we do because on one hand, we give artists a chance to do whatever they want, release whatever kind of music they want, whenever they want, however they want. It's, you know, we're not in any position to tell them what to do. And we're not going to say, you know, you should do this or you should do this or, or you should release only so much amount of music. And there's a, a schedule and a timeline to when you want to do these things. We would never do that. But the other thing that we did was, uh, you know, the standard record contracts that existed up until now um, was based on a series of assumptions that are no longer true. Uh, record labels don't pay for the artist to make their album anymore um, in almost every circumstance. I don't know, like if you're Beyonce, there may be. There may be some, <laughs> some there may be some situations that we don't really encounter for Beyonce and Radiohead, <laughs> right, you know, right, bands like that. But for almost everyone else, the record label doesn't pay for you to make your record. The record label isn't really paying for your PR. 
you know, there's a certain amount that they're able to do with their mailing list and you know, with their own connections. But PR is a completely different thing. And a good public relations agent is able to do something that no record label really can do on their own. And record labels don't pay for that. So record labels don't really pay for anything. And so in an ecosystem like that, it seems mad that they would then demand such a percentage of what the musician actually makes from the proceeds of the album that they've now paid, you know, in many cases, an exorbitant amount of money to create and put out into the world. And musicians do this because they're compelled to do it. You know, it, it's unthinkable that we wouldn't do it just because it's expensive and difficult. So we still do. But the only way that we're going to be able to survive as musicians in the future doing this financially and professionally and maybe even physically <laughs> is if is if you know platforms such as labels but then also dsps and pros and everything stop taking so damn much of the musicians money and so that's what we do so we offer a contract to artists that's i'm not going to get into the you know the nitty-gritty of it but it's considerably more favorable favorable to the artist than a standard record contract um you know we we don't take anything from performance royalties we don't take anything from sync royalties even though we pitch to all the same people that every other record label does we take a very small percentage of mechanical royalties um, which is dsps and digital platforms like bandcamp but essentially what we're considering ourselves is you can either think of us as a storefront where you just come to us and you get to sell your stuff in a store the way that any other artisan would. Or you could either consider us that or like basically like a contractor. Like we come in and do a job that most people don't know how to do or don't have the, you know, don't don't want to do because it's, you know, for most musicians, it's not fun to sit there and, and worry about DSPs and worry about PROs and all the, all the, I mean, like the, the recording industry and you know the music industry is unbelievably Byzantine right now. And so a label should consider themselves the contractor that comes in and does that on behalf of the artist, but then goes away, you know, once the roof is finished, the roofing contractor doesn't then own your house, <laughs> right? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, for a period of time or until you make enough money that you can then buy your house back again for the roofing contractor, which is sort of like what an old school record contract was like. So we, we don't do that anymore. And I, I was reminded of, of this just yesterday. There was a story about a, a couple of guys who were up to no good <laughs> and uh, they were, it turns out over a four year period had stolen $23 million worth of, uh, they had stolen $23 million from various artists simply because what they knew was they could simply claim ownership of these musicians output and what they had created knowing full well that most musicians don't know where to go to check to make sure no one's stealing from them. And that's a reflection of how complicated the music industry is, that it took people four years to figure out that they had done this and not until after they had already stolen 
$23 million worth of stuff. And I'm glad these guys are caught, but it, it sure seems to me like that's a, that's a statement on the current state of the music industry that they were able to do this. You know, you try walking into a bank and walking straight into a vault and, and walking away with $23 million. <laughs> right. They will probably stop you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. So that's what Atiropa really represents. It's just a, a, a way for people to simplify what they do, focus on what they want to do, and keep what they make uh, at the end of that process. Reminds me, I had a friend who was, it was in a, a, a really popular band in the late 90s, and they had like a number one single and um, there's a number one on Billboard and, you know, they were all over MTV and they, you know, they they would go to these towns as they became popular. He's like, you know, they, they travel in a van. Nobody cared what city they were in. Nobody from the label ever came to see him. But as they got more popular, they'd be like, hey, in New York City, this rep's going to take you all out to dinner. And, you know, they'd go out to dinner and they'd all order the steaks and champagne. And they would do that in every like New York, Indianapolis, Chicago, you know, any like major market kind of area or medium market, you know. And they get off the road and you know, come to find out that all these meals, uh, the only person who was eating them for free were the label reps because they were charged right. to their account. <laughs> so these giant right. meals went towards the money they owed the record label. And it just gives you yeah. an idea of how you know big labels and that again I'm not good this is a major record label for you know rock bands and stuff I'm not talking about some of the smaller labels that are out there and you know you know trying to do good stuff but yeah that's the type of stuff they hid from bands <laughs> you had no idea this happens all the time and what they do is they call that your buyback point or sorry your break-even point or they can call it the buyback point if they want to call it something different they don't call it you know you're paying for our stake <laughs> they say you know you need to reach a break-even point at which point you know such and such happens and then it's five years later and you wonder why you haven't made your break-even point and no one's given you a dime even though you've sold millions of copies of your record it's because of stuff like this I also find it really interesting, too, where a lot of artists who have existing works on streaming platforms, um, you know, they they'll post their checks online for what they had for, you know, like one million streams, you know, and it, it's, a, it's a pitiful That's amount. Right. However, you That's don't right. see the major labels complaining about how much they made no. off that million streams. You know what I mean? No. It's very interesting that, you know, a lot of the big labels still for legacy acts or whatever, they don't That's seem right. to be complaining about streaming. So they're still, they still must be baking a little bit there, you know? Well, you know, if you have a, a substantial catalog, which a major label will, that's, I mean, that's, that's just passive income to a major label. They're just sitting back and, you know, watching it roll in. Here's another way to think about it. So, you know, back in, the old days, you had your band, you had a record label, and you had a distributor, which they used to call the record store, which is where you went to go get the music that had been distributed. So nowadays, there's still the band. And so, you know, back then, you went and you went to the store, you bought a record, say, just hypothetically, it cost $10 just to make it easy. A third of that, or like, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing, a, a portion of it went to the band portion of it went to the label, portion of it went to the distributor. Nowadays, the band uh, goes into the hole by thousands of dollars to make the album. The record label comes in, takes a percentage of everything that is made on the album, the sale of the album, the distribution of the album, the streaming of the album, having paid nothing, 
to put it out into the world. And the distributor is Spotify, who pays no one anything. Right, right. You know, so where does that leave the artist? So, it, you know, there's a very interesting thing that Ted Gioia, who's a wonderful music writer, just put out yesterday, where uh, New Music USA asked him to make 10 predictions about what the music industry will be like 10 years from now. And some of it was, you know, he was being a little silly. Like he said that sales of trombones will skyrocket. <laughs> you know, all this stuff. But then he also said, you know, it's, it's not long before musicians figure out some way to circumvent the musical and financial ecosystem that they find themselves in right now in which, you know, making music and calling that an actual career is not sustainable, is untenable. And, you know, at, at some point there won't be any more music. they will just be content and nobody wants that. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It's content, really kind of right. content does not sound like art. <laughs> you know it, what I mean? It, it sounds boring. It sounds like a widget. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, there's a place in the world for that. You know, your interface with music and your experience with music is your own, and I, I'm not here to tell you how you should be listening to music or what kind of music. If you just want it to be wallpaper, then by all means, you know, put on a SoundCloud playlist, put on a playlist, you know, and just vibe, and that's fine. That's a perfectly good interface and experience of music you know the, the only thing that i don't want for people is to never have music at all in their life yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's terrible that, man the thought of it is is is, is sad awful but the impulse to create music uh, you know there will always be artists who are compelled to make this stuff and it's the duty of a, an actual society to give artists a place to do that because it enriches everyone, you know, enriches everyone except currently the artist. (laughs) 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 I hate to be dark, but you know, so what Adjirope is trying to do, you know, (laughs) bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. What Adjirope is trying to do is create a platform where it becomes a little bit more tenable a little bit more sustainable for the artists, you know, because we are artists, you know, we understand. And, you know, I, I would still consider myself, Joe, uh, primarily a musician who also has this other thing, you know, that I do. And so I, 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 not only do I understand, but I'm in a position where I can say, I can create this platform for other people. And like that enriches me <laughs> that not, not, you know, financially, but it like, it, you know, what I'm trying to create is a community of artists that uh, sits atop a rising tide that lifts all of our boats. You know what I mean? Hmm. Hmm. That's right. Yes. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, that's kind of why this podcast started was I wanted to shine a light on the mandolin world. You know what I mean? Uh, You know, this isn't a this isn't a million dollar idea here. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So, you know. As a mandolinist, I can I have to tell you, I appreciate you doing this because so many of my favorite musicians and friends have been on this, and it's been wonderful for oh, all of us. Thanks to, it, to have this platform that you've created. You know, at first it was really just to kind of 
pick the brains of some of my favorite players. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, wow, there's people actually listening to this. And there's other people interested in yeah. this. And the whole idea was, was, and I still haven't gotten to all the people on the list that I want to interview, but the idea was to interview all these players and eventually you get to a point where it saturates and then they'll have a new album out. And be like, now everybody That's knows true. who Jake Jolliffe is. Now uh, you can come on sure. and just talk about his album. You know what I mean? That's and right. and then, then it can last for however long, you know, as long as music's coming out. So... And, and speaking of that, you have yeah. um, on your label, uh, Jake mm. was on the label, which is a great sure album, and Ethan Satiwan, another, another right. one of my favorite players, and Joe K. Walsh, one of my all-time favorite players. His album's coming out probably early next year. So exciting. Uh, yeah, it, you know, it, it, the, the through line of all of this, and if you look at all the artists that we've been putting out, there's jazz, and there's bluegrass, and there's... Uh, acoustic music you know new americana or whatever you want to call it there's some we're putting out an opera album coming out later on and then you know the nine horses record which is sort of experimental jazz if you want to call it that you know So it's, it's a lot of different kind of stuff, and the through line is just, it's stuff that I like. <laughs> That's it. It's, and it's people that I like, you know? So, like, Jake has been a friend for a long time. I've known Ethan for a long time. I've known Joe for a long time. And so, it, you know, right now, it's just people who are uh, mostly around me, <laughs> you know, or close to me, and uh, people that I know that I like and that the only person that I actually went to go seek out to put something out on our label was the very first artist um, or the first two really. So the way it started was we created this platform for nine horses to put out our label or our album. And as we were doing that, I was having a conversation with Sam Sadagursky, who's uh, he's the clarinetist in the Philip Glass ensemble and one wonderful jazz player. And he was describing a situation with his previous record label that was similar to the one that we had. Uh, And I was like, well, you know, we have a label. We'll just put your stuff out and we'll do all that for you. And, you know, like we don't we're not in this to make like a huge profit off of it. We just want to give you a platform to put your album out, which you had already recorded. It was three albums worth of material duets between clarinet and accordion. The accordionist was my good friend, Nathan Kosey. So I said, we'll put your album out. And we did. And it was a, a huge success. It, you know, it um, got a lot of publicity in because it's sort of a crossover new music, classical and klezmer sort of style. Oh, stuff. wow. You know, un, 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 undefinable. There's no elevator pitch for it. And because of that, it did really well. And so then right after that, I went to my friend Libby Whitenauer, who's the fiddle player in Dallas Ugly, which is sort of a Nashville Americana folk indie, you know, indie country, alt country band. Hey, there's a car headed to the city in a minute. 
gotta see about a girl She don't live there But I heard she been hanging around And I think I know And I said, your record just got recorded If you're looking for someone to put your album out We will you know, <laughs> nice. and because you know they're small and they they're young and they had just sunk a ton of money into recording this thing, and so that their album is beautiful and that came out. It was a huge success, and from that point on, I've I've never really sought anybody else out. They they've kind of come to me. You know, I think word got out that we were offering this to people, and so it's mandolinists like Joe and Ethan and Jake. Um, in fact, you know, Jake happened because I went to Sam's record release party and Jake was there and Sam from the stage was talking about his like, oh, and so I have this new record label and it's it's this great thing. And, you know, Joe's been doing a lot of work for me. And I think Jake heard that. I don't think I don't know if he knew Sam at that point. But, you know, Jake is a, the kind of artist who really just wants to focus on making the music and making the art. And a lot of this other stuff, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but it seems like he doesn't want this getting in the way of, you know, his impulse and his, you know, compulsion to, to make stuff and to practice and to work and to be a better artist and better musician. And so it, it seemed like a good opportunity for him to just be like, well, if you take care of this, then, then you know we can work together and, and of course i was happy to i've known jake for 10 years now that's awesome yeah he's such a great guy he's such a great player but you know a lot of a lot of musicians a lot of musicians didn't get into this to have to i mean to, to be no. a successful musician requires all sorts of skill sets that musicians might not necessarily uh have you know like that yeah. there's there's a lot of emails there's a lot of booking i mean all that stuff that's a lot of work and you know one no even if it's like i like i always tell everybody like i i could send an email to a place that might not book me just because they never do live music and i didn't notice that but i would take mm. it as a personal aside that i'm horrible <laughs> it would send me back <laughs> it sent me back mentally like a year yeah. it'd be like oh they said no it's because i stink and it it could just oh, be no. because it's... they don't have a stage <laughs> you know what i mean that's they, right we've never had live music but i wouldn't take well, it that so, way i take it as a no something it's... you figure out over time <laughs> yeah. is that you know you're gonna hear no nine times for every one time you hear yes and a, a lot of times when someone tells you no that's that's a compliment to you because what they've done is taken the time to say no this isn't a good fit for us you know very very rarely do you get someone saying hey get out of here you stinker no, no one <laughs> right, is ever right. and if someone did react to you that way you know that by all means tell everyone you know that they did that and no one will want to work with them <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> So like, don't, uh, you know, it's, it takes a little practice at this, but you know, don't get despondent just because someone says no. Exactly. <laughs> oh man, yeah. that's great. So now on top of all this stuff, you are an extremely gifted mandolin player, man. Oh, well, goodness. Thank you. I mean, um, I remember the first time I heard anything by you and it was from your EP. I think mm. it's just called, is it called solo? And it's got like a, I'm assuming that's is it. that your face, this kind of screaming that, face? I, I put my face in a copy machine. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it looks like. That's great. That's what that is. And then I went in Photoshop and like changed the colors and stuff. But that's all it is. Uh, you know. Uh. 
But I, I remember hearing that and being like, who is this guy? Because again, um, and now you're, cl- is, would classically based, would that be the best way to describe how you started? Uh, yeah, started as a, you know, studying classical music, but then as a teen, really fell just as much into jazz. And, you know, so I went to Italy to go study with Carlo Alonso, but, but then I, yeah, super great guy. And I I learned so much from him, but I went there after having already graduated from Berkeley, you know, studying jazz with a lot of people like Mick Goodrick and, you know, Matt Glazer and stuff. So I, there was never a moment where I wanted to do one over the other. I, I always wanted to do both and I, I love them, but I'm equally serious about both. And, you know, Nine Horses, which is sort of my main band is really a reflection of that. It's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of orchestral writing and there's a lot of this big ensemble writing, but then every tune has a ton of improvisation and the, you know, the fiddle player in the band is Sarah Caswell, who's uh, a, you know one of the great improvisers really in the world right now, and she's uh, she's the first woman ever nominated for a Grammy Award for best improvised solo. Wow! Um, that that category had existed for sixty years, and they finally got around to nominating a woman, which is we can have a whole conversation about that. But she was the one, and, and so, you know she she'll one day win one of those, and certainly she'll be great. She'll be nominated for, for more of them. You know, and, um, you know, hopefully the band, you know, we're, we're already working on our next two albums that we're going to put out. Well, you did it. You did a duo album with her as well. That is really, really great. days it was just me and Sarah doing duo stuff um, and then we added a bass player uh, and the first Nine Horses album properly was a trio album with me Sarah and Sean Conley Sean, he was uh, stolen from us uh, by Yo-Yo Ma. He went off. He sold out. No hard feelings whatsoever. Sean is still a very good friend. But <laughs> that'd be a great get. <laughs> I know. Like it, it'd be, <laughs> it'd be really funny if, like, you know, for like like a Jackson Sharks thing. Like every time we saw Yo-Yo, we were like da 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 da. <laughs> Uh, no hard feelings at all. And so Sean recommended someone who had been his student, who's Andrew Ryan, um, who, you know, does all the same things Sean does, virtuoso classical musician, but also, you know, a world-class improviser in many different styles, which is sort of what the Nine Horses thing is. 
um, it's sort of this post genre, I guess, is the word that a lot of people are using for, for this sort of stuff. But, you know, really one whole foot in jazz world and maybe, you know, a half a foot in classical world and a half a foot in a couple of different worlds. That's a lot of feet now. But you get the point. I get the point, totally. Uh, <laughs> so it, it started with just me and Sarah, and then it grew, and then it was a trio album called Nine Horses, and then the last record, Omega. Um, I think there's 40-something musicians on the album because we're – using these sort of orchestral resources and recorded mostly during the pandemic. Uh, and I, I'm also a studio engineer. Uh, I have a, you know, a partnership with a, a studio out in Brooklyn and I've been working as, as an engineer sort of on the side for a long time. And so I, just before the pandemic, I had built out my home studio pretty well. And, and so I was able to do a lot of stuff there which worked out great for me because we didn't have to stop working during the pandemic. And we just, I invited people over and I, I had it set up so that people could come over to my house and there would always be a door in between me and them. So, you know, people who are worried about COVID and stuff didn't, you know, never actually were in a room with me. You know, while they were recording right there in my home, I had a little ISO room where people could record and then I could, multi-track stuff together later on and piece it together a little bit at a time and the the drummer that we worked with for a lot of the music on the record kevin garcia uh is the drummer in the steel wheels and uh he yeah and he has an amazing home drum studio as well and so what you can do i i think a lot of people don't realize this is not only can you uh you know zoom in with someone but then you can I forget what it's called, but it's where I can take control of your screen. Um, do you know what I'm talking I do, about? I don't. I don't know what the name of it is, but like when I've had issues with like Pro Tools or whatever, I just call Sweetwater, and then that guy's like, "Yeah, do you mind if I get in?" And that's exactly it. And so what? What I would do is I would set up a multi-camera setup. He was in his home drum studio. I could see him playing, but then I had a second screen that was controlling his home pro Tools setup so i was engineering his session oh, wow. i was in manhattan he was in his apartment in brooklyn and it it was as if i was just in a control room in a studio and he was in the tracking room and there was no you know no i mean there was a little bit of latency but i could like there was no trouble in like hearing what he was doing and you know, working it as just sort of a normal session man that's wild it, it felt incredibly futuristic. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you're, that, that Omega album is really futuristic. I, I couldn't help but think, and this is always dangerous territory to, to mm. put, I don't mean to label anything, but if I had to <laughs> compare it to anything, it would be like if Radiohead recorded an album with Van Dyke Parks. Oh my goodness.
that's a, so I don't know if that's insulting. That's a wonderful or not. compliment. All Thank right, you. good. I'll take it, so, I'll take it that way. And, and if people don't know, Van Dyke Parks is the guy who worked a lot with Brian Wilson and did a lot of orchestration right. bits for stuff and just really incredible, lush, mind blowing yeah. stuff. And that's what um, some of these songs kind of reminded me of. Now, it could have been the codeine that from the cough medicine. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you wouldn't be the first who's uh, who's a. Uh, experience of music has been uh, 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 substantially informed by drug use. That's right. So that's right. <laughs> this is I'd like to mention not- legal codeine <laughs> from a pharmacy. <laughs> did, now, did you start on mandolin? Was that your first instrument? Uh, my first instrument was violin. Okay. Um, Makes but, total sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, well, first of all, if you listen to Nine Horses, you'll notice I'm not playing violin on it. <laughs> I wouldn't dare play violin in a band that has Sarah Caswell in it. <laughs> I'm by far the, the second best violinist. In my <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, pretty young, at a pretty young age, I was already playing guitar and mandolin and domra and balaika and all kinds of ethnic instruments. Uh, I, I love mandolin in particular from a very young age because it was all the cool you know, stuff that you can do on a violin, you can do on a mandolin almost as easily. Um, but then you can do this whole other thing, which is just to lay back and play twos and fours and accompany someone um, in a in a way where you can become part of the rhythm section in a way that's very difficult to do with violin. Now, like, you know, Casey Driesen and Alex Hargreaves, you know, their chop technique and Daryl Anger, their chop technique is not so advanced that they can do a lot of that stuff too, but it doesn't come naturally to a violin. And, and for me, that was where I was having the most fun was as a member of the rhythm section, as an accompanist, as someone who, you know, made other people sound good. I, yeah, I'm the same. I love that. I love playing where I can be the snare drum with a really good bass player, Uh, you know, like so good. I, you know, I mean, like, listen to those Count Basie recordings. And I was like, how, why do they swing so hard? It's the same stuff that everyone else. I'm like, it's because Freddie Green is just sitting, Freddie sitting Green. there hitting those twos and fours. And it makes, it just adds this propulsion to the music. And it's, it's an incredible feeling. And, uh, you know, that my favorite musicians, I think, have always been the ones who, how to just, I guess as a as someone who's been a freelance musician for a long, long time, you start to notice, you know, every once in a while you play with a musician enough times and you realize, wow, we the band sound always sounds really good when this musician is in the band. And at some point you're like, Well, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think <laughs> yeah. the, this is someone who knows how to make other people sound good. And that's not only a, a you know a a function of their musicianship and their ear and their whatever. It's also a something, it says something about their ego, you know, uh, and I, it, it says something very complimentary about the musicians who are able to do that. And I, for me, that's, I mean, like there's lots of Jimi Hendrixes, but uh, you know, uh, there's so few Freddie Greens and I always, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I feel, I feel very confident in my technique on, on the instrument. But the joy comes in the collaboration for me, not not so much, hey, everyone, stop what you're doing and <laughs> listen to me shred. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean that's yeah, that's what makes though, you know, I mean that that's you know what makes a solo performer, I guess, if that's what they want to do, different from a band, you know, and that's why sometimes when you hear certain acts that are and, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do, you know, but you know, you get to make that conscious decision yourself and I like being part of a like a band, that, a unit yeah, of stuff, you that's, know. Right. That's why it's not called Joe Brent and Nine Horses. You know, even though I, I write all the tunes, I record all the tunes, I do everything, it's all whatever. But, you know, the, the first tune on that last album, Omega, I take a solo near the beginning of the song. The second tune on the album, there's a solo section where four musicians are trading off. <laughs> one of those four and then i don't take another solo the whole rest of the album and that's kind of by design is i was i was sort of subconsciously you know putting out there making a statement that that's not my role in this band you know and uh, uh if you listen to the record it's really you know it's it the band and you know this sort of massively orchestral texture is there to be the platform that really sarah is the one who's floating over the top of it with this incredible violin playing you know that was really what the design of it was so it's definitely the most fun version of music making for me is to do it that way great and you have plenty of i mean if people go to your shop on your website there's plenty of um like that uh listen to some of the tracks from an englishman in new york and caprices that is it david loeb That's right, David Love. We, we were uh, we taught at Manus College here in, in the city together. He's a composition professor, and I was teaching mandolin. Um, wonderful composer, and he wrote uh, two books of sonatas for me. He wrote uh, a series of duos, you know, and uh, a chamber concerto, and all kinds of music for mandolin while I was working there. It, it, um, he's very influenced by Japanese music, particularly like gagaku music. Um, and so I think mandolin for him was a way to have uh, an American performer whose instrument sort of has a similar timbre and texture to some of these Japanese instruments. Um, and he can write really as himself, 
um, and have someone like me come in and you know play this music. And so it was a great album. It was a long time ago, but I, you know, some of those duos on that album are are particularly interesting because there's one with Miranda Cookson, who's the violin professor at Manus. Uh, one with Josh Rubin is the clarinetist in the International Contemporary Ensemble. And then another with a guitarist named Oren Fader, who teaches the Manhattan School of Music. And so there's this great opportunity to play with them because they're such incredible musicians, all three of them. That's amazing, man. Yeah. That's uh, so really cool. Did you did you ever get into any sort of stuff like bluegrass and different things like that? Or were you always just drawn to to well, different styles of music? I you know, I, I do bluegrass. I, you know, I get bluegrass gigs, gigs occasionally, but I'm coming at bluegrass from jazz. And so I, I, uh, you know, and I'm not the first to do that. <laughs> you know, there, are, there are plenty. I mean, Jake Jolliffe is a good example of someone who has, you know, uses his jazz vocabulary in the bluegrass tradition, but he's, he's coming from bluegrass and then picked up jazz and he's equally good at both, you know, but like his bluegrass solos have, you know, displacements and the chord substitutions and Coltrane stuff. And, you know, and so I'm, we, we sort of met in the middle with that, but it was never, I wouldn't say that it's my most comfortable, you know, genre. If someone asked for like, you know, a straight bluegrass thing, um, I enjoy it. I, I really love it, but it, it's not my best thing. You know, there, there's a, a movie that was uh, coming out before the pandemic. They were making a movie about the Leuven brothers. Oh, were they the, really? Yeah, it was going to be with Ethan Hawke uh, playing Ira Leuven. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so they came to me and, and they said, we want to do a demo of all this music so that, you know, we can demonstrate, you know, here's what it'll sound like in the movie. And then, you know, get some people to donate money, you know, to, to help produce the movie and stuff. And this is before the pandemic and who knows where it is right now, what the status of it is. But I, I did this super deep dive on the music of the Leuven Brothers so that I could be kind of like the stunt, you know, mandolinist <laughs> right, that you would right. you would see me in close up, and then you, that would be me playing on the soundtrack. Um, but even after an extended period of, of like just learning every Ira Leuven solo, at the end of it, I was kind of like, man, I uh, honestly they should have asked Compton, oh, well, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Or, or, or somebody like that, or, or honestly, like, you know, Jolliffe, or even Michael Daves is a, a wonderful mandolinist as well. Great really mandolin player. strong, strong in that Bill Monroe, Ira Leuven style. Also an incredible historian of the music. So, <laughs> so by all means, you know, ask me to play in your movie and on your soundtrack. <laughs> um, but but it, it's hard for me to be something other than other than what I am. Yeah, I mean it's it, again it's like it, it is like it's a language in a sense of like you know it's right. it's if you can try to learn Spanish all you want you can try to learn Spanish uh -huh. for a year but until you speak somebody who speaks Spanish and then you realize oh I guess maybe I don't uh -huh. really know Spanish you know what I mean like That's it's like, <laughs> That's right. it's, it's, it's yeah. you got to really get into it and it's understandable. There's always someone out there who's more legit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, your 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 classical stylings and your jazz stylings. I mean, you're just like your your fluidity of of, of notes and and you know. Not, I mean, I guess I'm gonna get nerdy. This is a place to get nerdy, but you know, your arpeggios <laughs> and you're just like seamless shifting. It sounds like you know what I mean. Like it's you. you sound like your mandolin's neck is 36 inches long. <laughs> you know well. What I mean? uh, 
Uh, I mean, you know, you know what the, I'm going to resist the temptation to make the obvious joke. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> Here. But, you know, that's a, that brings up an opportunity to, you know, if, if it seems like I'm dealing with a, a, a wider register than most mandolinists, it's because I literally am. I, my main instrument is a 10-string instrument that was made for me uh, by Brian Dean up in Cape Breton. Uh, um, uh, he had made me an eight string instrument, uh, that I liked so much that I said, Brian, you got to make me a 10 string because I was listening to a lot of short home music like Camilta de Holanda, Dudu Maya, and you know, all these guys. Um, and in particular to be able, uh, to play mandolin, which is normally tuned exactly the same as a violin. Um, but to then have an instrument that goes beneath the violin register so I can accompany Sarah a little bit more effectively. So he made me that 10 string and that's now my main instrument, including, you know, on classical, classical stuff as well. Man. And they are, uh, I'm looking at pictures of it now and I've seen pictures of it yeah. years ago, but what yeah. a wild body style, man. And it sounds so uh, yeah. amazing. I mean, again, player's hands, I, I'm not discounting your ability to coax tone out of it, but I mean, that's just, it's a great sounding instrument as well. Well, I, I have a lot of great stories about the making of that instrument. And one goes way back to when I was in school, Daryl Anger came to Berkeley and while Matt Glazer was on sabbatical, Daryl Anger was one of the fiddle player, one of the fiddle teachers at Berkeley. And so he's awesome. And we just had a great time hanging out. And I was talking about some of his instruments. He plays a lot of modern instruments. And I, I kind of asked him about that. And he said, he has this great quote where he's like, man, if Stradivarius was alive today, he'd look at fiddles and be like, you guys are still doing this. <laughs> and I, I completely agree with that. I, I think that's great. Like the, surely, you know, the instruments evolution can't just stop, <laughs> you know, he was making instruments, Stradivarius was making instruments for people who were playing different music in different venues and in different styles than we are now. And surely someone, you know, can figure out a way to make instruments for players that are around now. And there are so many incredible independent luthiers that would jump at a chance to say, if you went to them and said, listen, here's what I do. Here's what I need. Can you make something that's really tailored for what I do? Would love that challenge. And, you know, Brian Dean was one of those makers. And Brian himself has a, a theory that the reason why mandolin evolution sort of ossified after lore was that that's the shape the cases are. And no one wants to buy a mandolin and a case. They want the case to just come with it and fit all the other mandolins <laughs> right. they have. And, and like, there's probably some truth to that. And like, he's right that that's a terrible reason why the mandolin should be shaped like that. <laughs> you know, make, figure out the case after, make the mandolin to fit what you do. And so I came to him and I said, here's what I do, here's what my band does. I play a lot of classical stuff. I, I play with orchestras and, and all this other stuff, but I also want a classical mandolin that can chop. And I want an instrument that, you know, can, uh, that I can move around and has a wide extended register. So I can play a lot of the, you know, sort of really experimental and, and jazz music that I'm doing. So he made that eight string. And then I just asked for a 10 string 
after that. And so there, there's a lot going on. If, if you look at a, a picture of, uh, in particular, the 10 string, which is my main instrument now, um, there's a lot going on with it. So the, the pick guard is inlaid into the top so that it doesn't rattle around and, you know, there's no issues with that. Um, the F holes uh, uh, come out over the sides of the instrument. And the reason it does that is because mandolins are very, very good at projecting sound out in front of you towards the audience. But what they're not good at is giving you the information, you the player, of what you actually sound like. You sound very different 10 feet in front of you than you do directly under your ear. It's a very different sound. And so what happens is a lot of mandolin players overdrive their sound because they don't have the confidence that they're projecting and punching through an ensemble when they, they are. And when you overdrive your sound, you actually lose projection and you get, you lose your tone and, you know, it doesn't sound quite as good. And it certainly, you know, sounds much worse 10 feet away than it does, you know. So the F holes hanging out over the sides are a way for some more of that sound to come up to you, to your ear, to give you the confidence that you're doing exactly what you should do and the mandolin is doing what it's designed to do, which is to make the sound project. I love the cutaway too, man. It gives you really easy access to get up to those high notes, huh? Yeah, the, the cutaway, I'm, I'm looking at my 10 string right now and I, I've forgotten actually what fret it cuts away at, but it usually it cuts away at, at like around the 12th fret or so. This one goes all the way up to like the 17th so that, so that it doesn't get in the way of, you know, in particular for classical music when you're really ranging up there. Um, um, and if you, uh, another thing that's kind of cool is if you look at um, the tailpiece and, you know, the, you know, the, the tuners and all this stuff, you'll notice very, very little on the instrument isn't made of wood, as little as possible. The tailpiece is tiny, and the tuners are sort of this, this you know, tiny hashed together Waverly thing. And it's because Brian has a, a theory that, you know, as much as possible, the instrument should come from something that was alive and organic. And, you know, even the, you know, the, the binding, it isn't plastic, which it is even on really good mandolins. The binding on his instruments is made out of clarinet blackwood. Oh, no kidding, really? Hardwood. Yeah. Um, and it has a built-in sort of tone guard where the, the back of the instrument is a false back. There's a true back on the second floor, you know, sort oh, of on the inside wow. of the mandolin. Oh, man, that's um, cool. Yeah, so, like, your belly doesn't deaden the vibrations of the instrument in any meaningful way. You know, the, the actual resonating and projecting back is a, an entirely different kind of wood. The The body of the instrument, I think, is made out of, um, gosh, I've forgotten at this point, but it's, I think it's, uh, the resonating back of the instrument is Carpathian spruce. The top of the instrument is walnut, which is sort of, you know, backwards from a lot of instruments. And I, I think the sides and the false back are made out of maple. Yeah. That's it. They're beautiful, so, man. A lot going on. And uh, you know, the, the last thing I'll say about, it, I can nerd out about these instruments all day, but you know, the, the last thing I'll say is if, if you look at the front of that 10 string and the eight string before it, you look carefully and try to imagine just the top plate, 
without the sides or the back. What he did was he cut a comedy tragedy face, and that's what the F-holes are. Oh, get out of here. Yeah, so it's like the laughing, crying, oh, you know, comedy wow, tragedy yeah. thing. That's that's oh, that's why that's the awesome. F-holes are shaped like that. It, oh, it looks wow. sort of like a devilish little grin. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, he showed me a picture of the top plate before it had been assembled and joined and everything. And, and I was like, oh, you slide out. <laughs> <laughs> what was, so before you had these, what was like your main, what was your main instrument before that? I, you know, I had some, some Gibson Fs. I had some, some other instruments. Uh, I, my main one coming back from Italy was I had a Pandini, you know, just like the one that, that Carlo Anzo plays. Um, but, you know, I, I have a Bresciano. I have a, 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 a Baroque mandolin, you know, the six string thing. And I, I use those situationally. Um, but really for classical gigs, unless it's very specifically like, you know, playing Vivaldi with a period ensemble, I really just use the 10 string for everything now, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I got a bunch of instruments laying around, you know, tons of guitars and ethnic instruments. And As somebody who obviously, I mean, you have a book. Another thing I, I saw on your shop there is you actually have a book on um, like scales and arpeggios that you had put mm -hmm. out a while back. And one of the questions I like to ask um, players who, who play professionally is if you had if you recommended something for someone to work on for 10 minutes a day. Um, you know, and again, it's tough because everybody's got different skill sets and different things like that. But all I'm always trying to do is just finding something to inspire somebody who's listening to this to hear something to be like, oh, I want to try that for 10 minutes. And then they end up playing an hour. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. like the end goal is like, you know, I, I, I can't even tell you how many times like I'll be like go to put my mandolin in the case before I go to bed or whatever. And I'll be like, I was going to work on this lick one more, one more time. And then next thing I know, it's like two hours later. You know what I mean? And it's just like the most magical. I'm always like, I love when this happens, <laughs> you know, cause yeah. it wasn't the intention, but it works. Cause you just fall in love with it. But it means you're doing it right, man. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, I, I'll give you two answers to that question. It's a really good question. One is, this is a thing I tell all of my students which is, okay, go sit down in front of a mirror so that you're looking at yourself while you play. First things first is look at how you're sitting because most people sit in their chair with terrible posture. You know, sit up straight and you'll be able to see that. Now, okay, find a note on your instrument, you know, but it should be a stop note. So like put your third finger down on the fifth fret of the A string and play that D. And tremolo on that note, not a fast tremolo, just a nice even consistent tremolo at the absolute quietest dynamic you can play just brushing the top of the string and do that for a solid minute and as you're doing that look at yourself in the mirror and you'll be able to isolate where the tension in your posture is coming from because it starts in between your eyebrows with like a furrowed herb furrowed brow so the first thing do, like relax your brow and then relax your jaw, then relax your neck and your shoulders and relax your arm and try to isolate the actual thing that you need to do to produce that sound. And what you'll discover is it's much, much less energy and motion than you usually exert if you don't think about it. 
And you can do this looking in a mirror. You can actually see the tension start to disappear. And if you really focus on the sensation of all the muscles in your shoulder and in your arms not being used, and yet the sound is exactly the same because you just don't need to do that. Now, once you've done that and you have this nice, very, very quiet, consistent tremolo with not a lot of motion, not a lot of energy be expended, now slowly crescendo. Use absolutely no more motion, no more energy. The only thing that creates a louder dynamic is using a little bit more pressure in the pick to create more uh, resistance against the string. But don't move your arm anymore. Don't, you know, create more tension somewhere else in your body. Don't, you know, jackhammer your arm up and down to do this. <laughs> it's just in a tiny area. And as you start to crescendo up, you know, to like a forte, you'll notice, oh my goodness, I'm able to make this sound while barely moving. I don't need to be doing all this stuff. I don't need to be expending all this energy and all this motion. Crescendo up without without tremoloing any faster. Crescendo up to a forte, not a like fortissimo, just a nice solid forte. And then all the way back down to your quietest fortissimo. And if you do it right in the mirror, from pianissimo to forte will look exactly the same. You won't be able to tell with the naked eye that you're actually playing loud. And I, I tell all of my students to do this once a day. I do it every day. It's the first thing I do when I pull the instrument out of the case, just as a way to calibrate my body, my arm, and really just my sense of what I actually have to do to produce a good sound on the instrument. Once that's done, everything else is cake. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes, I, like, I can play this very difficult music, and understand that when I waste energy with a, you know, wasted motion, wasted all this stuff, I'm just making it harder for myself. The music is hard enough already. <laughs> you know? So if you start with this exercise, you make so many other things and you're playing so much easier. So that's my first answer. And the other answer I would give is an exercise that Carlo Anzo gave me. Uh, it's a, um, it's a, it's a scale arpeggio exercise um, that he taught me. And it's in that book that I wrote. It's, you know, um, uh, it's like a string crossing exercise. And it, coming from violin, one of the, the main differences between mandolin and violin is that with violin, the bow jumps because there's tension on the, the bow hair. And so a lot of string crossings and you know the up and down motion gravity is actually doing a lot of that work for you because you like you just give a little bit of a tug on the bow and then it jumps off the string because of the tension in the bow hair with mandolin you have to do all that work yourself string crossing is difficult to do um string crossing you know reversing the direction of your string crossing so like let's say the you know the notes are going up but you're playing an up to a down stroke or a down to an upstroke. So if you're like sort of on the wrong foot, that's very difficult to do. It's sort of a basic problem or challenge in mandolin technique. Uh, and so this exercise that he gave me really isolates that. It's sort of first, second, and third position string crossing exercise. Um, and it goes from the G to the D string to the D to the A string to the A to the E string. 
and it, 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 this is not a visual media podcasting, <laughs> so it's hard for me to describe it. But if anybody hears this and they're interested, you can send me an email and I'll send you the, the sheet music or, or like a video of me doing it just to demonstrate. Yeah, I'd love you to very, send me. I'd love you to send me that too. That would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Or you can like put it in the you know the, your website. Oh like yeah, that'd be great, post. man. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind doing that, and then I'll post it on the uh, I'll post it on the website so people can check it out. Absolutely, very very helpful um, as, as just sort of an exercise for string crossing. But like combined with, as you're doing this, just make sure that your posture is good, you're relaxed, you're not moving any more, you're not expending any energy. Just you know, trust the instrument to do what it's designed to do, which is <laughs> right. to make your sound pop, and then you just you just do the notes. <laughs> Yeah, those are great. Those are really great ones. And and, and before I get to that final question, where where's the mm. best way to everybody to find you um, on the on the internet? Uh, I'm I'm pretty easy to find. If you, like I have a website, which is uh, is it Joe or Joseph? Brent? It oh, is Joseph. It's josephbrent.com. Yeah. Please call me Joe, but I think Joe Brent was <laughs> taken by a British car dealer. So ah. that, <laughs> so josephbrent.com it is. And if you go to my website, you'll see stuff about me you'll see stuff about nine horses and then if you go to odhiroparecords.com uh which is spelled a-d-h-y-a-r-o-p i probably have just made this even more difficult <laughs> i'll have but, links you know, have a link to it and you can see more about um the the record label and the stuff that we're doing over there uh, pretty easy to find if you just google us and then the final question is, yes, sir. Do you have a favorite beer? Uh, I knew this question was coming because I know <laughs> of your work. I'm familiar with your work, sir. Um, and uh, in fact, I did a mandolins and beer before it was a podcast. I think back when it was a written. It was thing, a like, like a little email. written blog thing, and I think on my website it might even still. I'd have to go back and look. I think I might have. It was called Five Questions. Yeah, and I I don't remember what I said. I'm pretty sure I said Green Flash at that time, which is years ago, um, which is a beer out of San Diego that went defunct. And I I was so sad to see it go because it's a fantastic, they specialized in California IPAs. So I, I can't give that answer anymore, but what I, there's just like luthiers, independent luthiers, as you know, there are a lot of very creative microbreweries, you know, uh, that are around there. Even breweries that really can't call themselves microbreweries anymore. They're still doing really excellent, wonderful, creative stuff. Kind of hard to narrow it down. But my answer to you is if you look for uh, Hudson Valley Brewery, which not only is a great brewery, but they were my neighbors for a little while. And I know that they're also very lovely people. <laughs> and what, what, what they specialize in is sour IPAs. Um, and, it, you know, they do a lot of other different kinds of things too, but really the sour IPAs are the thing with lots of different kinds of botanicals and all this stuff. Um, but what I really appreciate about them, other than them being nice people who, uh, were close, <laughs> uh, was that they're very, very creative. And in fact, the labels on their beer cans are made by two local artists. One is Evan Cohen and one is, oh, I've forgotten her name, but she's, she's married to the brewmaster and, and, 
Brewmaster's wife is a wonderful artist as well. And so the labels on these beer cans are the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And it, it really is, it, it's all there to give the impression that you're not just, you know, drinking a beer, you're experiencing something that was made with creativity and passion and love. And uh, uh, I, I just think that's fantastic. And so Hudson Valley Brewery based out of Beacon, New York. Um, I don't live in Beacon anymore, it, but I still go all the time. And I always stop in it at Hudson Valley and they're just great, great folks. Well, speaking of great folks, Joe, you're a great guy, man. Thank you so much for oh, doing goodness. this. You too. Thank you for your time, Daniel. Oh my gosh. And, uh, anytime, man, for real. This was really, this is a, this is a, a good reason to get out of bed this week. <laughs> oh, man. I, I have to tell real quick before we go. Yeah. Uh, the first time I had COVID, uh, we talked about this, you know, before we, the interview started, but, uh, uh, the year after COVID first happened, we, the vaccinations happened. We all got vaxxed. We thought we were done with the whole thing was over. This is only one year into the pandemic. So this is 2020. It was the summer and Rockwood music hall opened up in New York. And I hadn't been to a live musical performance in a year and I was starving for, for something. <laughs> right. And so I went to Rockwood the first week it opened, And the band that night was Jake Jolliffe. Alex Hargreaves, Michael Daves, and Tony Trishka. And it was great. And all my friends were there and we were hugging and crying and just like, oh, it's so wonderful to see you. And we all gave each other Delta. <laughs> so and it's, it, I lost my sense of smell. I was sick. It sucked. So almost all of us have been there, my friend. Yeah, so, I, it's, a, it's a drag, man. But, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Nah, you can rest up and take care of yourself. Exactly. Take some more. I'm going to take some more codeine cough medicine and listen to some more music. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The best medicine there is. Uh, thank you for your time, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for listening. All right. Thank you so much to Joe for doing the podcast. Again, you can go to mandolinsandbeer.com and get a PDF copy of the exercise he talks about in the 10 minutes a day segment. And also be sure to check out all his links on the label website. And uh, for any questions about what song samples were played, they're listed and what album they're listed on are also at mandolinsandbeer.com. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.